can turn over in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to continue our study through the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 11 to 15. You can look at that as we introduce our message today, God's Amazing Grace. It'll probably be a couple parts to this message. Um, one thing is I was looking over this text this week and trying to understand it and, and uh, really praying about uh, how to uh, take it apart and present it. Um, the one thing I... I began to uh, realize is that our faith in Christ is something that's unique um, to our system of belief. Uh, Christianity is not like um, the rest of the world and their uh, beliefs as far as their gods are concerned. Most of the world's religions... um, if you study them at all, you're, you're going to find out that there's a, there's a vast difference between the personal God that, that we serve and who saved us and the false God and gods that so many other people follow. Uh, I put a little chart there in your outline, the difference between world religion, which is false, and Christianity, which is true. And the first thing that you see there is that world religion is based on fear you know anything about any religion at all other than Christianity, it's, it's based on fear. Um, their deity is angry at them. It's hostile toward them. And somehow they have to appease their God. Their God is a vengeful God. He's very impersonal. They wouldn't say that you could know their God. Um, what you do about that situation is really up to you, and that's the solution. That's the only solution they have. And it's really a system that's based on works. It's based on merit. Uh, that's very common in our society today. You, you go to school, you go to uh, school, you study hard, you get grades. Your, graced are, your grades are based on merit. When you go to college, that whole agenda is based on merit. When you get out and you get a job, your promotions and everything, they're based on merit. They don't just give them out for free. So we're we're in this world that surrounds us with this, we have to do, we have to do, we have to do. And so it's just ingrained in us that somehow, when it comes to our relationship with God, we carry that right over and we say, okay, God is angry at me, now I've got to do something to appease him. We understand that the sinner is violated his God, and somehow he has to make his God feel unviolated. So in our humanness, we want to do more. We want to try to pray more. We read the Bible more. We go to church more. We be nice to people more. We help more people. Thinking all those time, all the time we're doing that, somehow God is looking down saying, oh, boy, the more you do, the more I'm going to love you. That's the merit system. That's not what the Bible teaches about our God. Our God doesn't operate that way. Uh, When you look at the false religions of the world, they're basically, you can split them up into 
those who follow some ceremony and those who follow some legal moral code. So they attempt to appease their God through those different venues. And that's really the heart of any false religion. Satan is the author of these religions. It's not men. Uh, The Apostle Paul calls these false religions the doctrines of demons. Talks about seducing spirits through these human spokesmen that represent various world religions that are false. But it's very much based on fear. And these religions come out of the pit of hell itself. Satan himself is behind these various religions. So when anybody you know is involved in a man-made religion, that false religion, you might think, well, that's just kind of an innocent thing, but it's really not. It's Satan-inspired. And basically, there's a lot of things that are absent from these religions that we see in ours, in Christianity, in followers of Christ, in the God of the Bible, the true gospel. We know that Christianity is based on love. It's based on a God who is not angry or hostile, but a God who is loving and compassionate. A God who is graceful, who we can know personally, the Bible says. And it's not what we do that's the solution to our dilemma with God because of our sin. It's what was done on Calvary for us. That's what we put our faith and trust in. We don't trust in what we do. It's not based on human merit. It's based on what? It's based on God's provision. It's based on grace. When we look at our text today, the one thing that's going to stand out to you is that our God is a God who saves. Our God is our Savior. The Bible says that our God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible even says that our God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge and blessedness of the truth. So that they're delivered delivered from the the wages of sin. I mean, I can't think of any other verse. John 3.16 kind of sums it up. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? That whosoever, whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our God is a Savior. He wants to be known as a Savior. God saw the world in sin. And that sin was directed against Him. It offended Him. It blasphemed His name. It dishonored Him. It violated everything that He was. It broke the standard that He laid down for us. And yet He loved us so much that He sought not just to destroy us, but He made provision for us. 
See, the, the simple message of our faith, beloved, is that Christianity is based on a God who saves men from sin. That's our message. That should be the message of the church. God saves sinners. 1 Timothy 2.3 says, God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Even Isaiah 43.11 says, And there is no Savior besides me. That's God speaking. See, God likes to speak of himself as a saving God. And I think the most important thing for us to grasp is that he is a God who saves, and that's part of his character. That's who he is. And we reap the benefits of his goodness and his grace. Even in Micah chapter 7, I think it's verse 18, it says, who is, God, who is a God like thee? Who pardons iniquity? Who is a saving God like thee? When you stop and you think of the glory of God, there's nothing in the entire world that depicts his glory to the highest level like salvation does. Salvation is God's glorious work on display. His saving work puts him on display. Puts his power, his justice, his mercy, his grace on display. Because God is a God who desires to save sinners. He desires to save and transform sinners so that they will end up doing good works and those good works will demonstrate to other sinners the evidence of His grace, of His power, of His mercy so that they could be drawn to the same God for salvation. See, that's the message of the church. That God is a Savior and that He demonstrates His saving power through those He has saved. I mean, that's why he didn't just pop us out of here when we were saved. I mean, to me, that would be a lot easier. You know, you get saved and boom, you're in heaven, you're gone. You don't have to stay down here in the sin-stayed world. No, he left us here. Why did he leave us here? Just to cause us some misery? No, that's not the God we serve. The reason he left us here was so that we might be a demonstration of his grace, of his mercy. And so it's very important for us who are here and who name the name of Christ to live godly lives in order that we demonstrate God's saving power. God desires to display His glory by saving sinners from their sin. Now last week we looked at the first part of chapter 2 in Titus. And basically, Titus ran through a whole group of people, different age groups, different genders. Older men, younger women, older women, younger men, even slaves or servants. And he basically called all of them to live godly lives in spite of your circumstances. He called them to holy living, righteous behavior. And it tells us why in verse 10, so that there are many who are insubordinate, empty, or excuse me, verse 2, chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 10, 
so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know, when it comes around Christmas time, you know, you decorate your home and you adorn your house. You decorate your house. You know, that's, that's kind of what the idea is here. That we're putting God's saving power on display when we live lives of righteousness and holiness before a lost and sinful dying world. The Bible tells us that we should let our light shine before men so that they may see what? Our good works. So they can glorify us? No. So that they can conclude that God is a saving God and will give Him glory for His saving power. So all those commands that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 10 of Titus 2 are built on the the doctrinal truth of verses 11 through 15. He wants us to live righteous lives so that we can put the Savior on display, so that we can display His saving power through our holy conduct. That's what we're called to do as believers. That's why it's so important that your, your talk matches your life, or your life matches your talk. We have too many Christians going around saying they're Christians and living anything but the Christian life. And so the whole church suffers as a result. Oh, those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Oh, I had a Christian once live next to me. And people go on and on and on and berate Christianity because of, of some poor soul that's out there living a life that's not in accord with what Christ calls us to live. See, if people can't see that we've been saved from our sin, beloved, then God isn't really glorified in our lives. That's key. As you look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, this is probably one of the most fascinating texts in Scripture. It's really kind of just zeroes right in on what we believe as Christians. So follow along in your Bibles as I read our text for this morning. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You see here in verse 11 that the grace of God appeared to demonstrate salvation. Then, when you jump down to verse 14, it tells us that the whole purpose of us living here on earth is to demonstrate the saving power of God. That we are zealous for good works. That people will see that and declare that our God is a God who saves. I mean, the whole purpose of God's grace, beloved, is to produce a regenerated people who will then be 
testifying and witnesses of God's saving power. Well, let's look at some definitions. A lot of times people get grace and mercy mixed up. God's grace, classic definition, is God's, it's God's unmerited favor. Notice unmerited favor. We talked about the world we live in and how we're based on the merit system. Well, God doesn't run his show that way. He runs it by an unmerited favor. That's God's grace. God giving you something, blessing you in some way, even though you don't deserve it. That's God's grace. What's God's mercy? God's mercy is his withheld justice. See, grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding something that we do deserve. As a parent, if you take your children out to a restaurant and they're naughty during their meal and throwing food and just being bad, one of the things, optional things you can do is, you want some ice cream? Do you want some dessert? You better clean up your act, right? Play that card all the time. Well, giving them grace would be, you know what, in spite of your actions, you don't deserve this dessert, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'm going to show you grace. Mercy would be, you know what, if you don't clean up your act and start acting properly, when you get home, you're going to get a spanking. That's what's going to happen. But when you get home, you withhold that spanking for whatever reason. That's mercy. Even though the child deserved it, that's mercy. See, grace means that God showed us favor. He showered his blessing down upon us, even though we didn't deserve it. (laughs) Actually, we deserve just the opposite. We deserve his what? His wrath. We deserve his judgment, the Bible says. But instead of showing us his wrath and his judgment, he withheld that, but he gave us his favor. Now, today we live in a society, even within the church, that really pollutes these definitions on both sides. On one side, grace runs really counterintuitive to the way the world works. It's it's hard to understand. Why would God give me something I don't deserve? Why would God give me something that I haven't worked for? We don't understand that kind of thing. I mean, even when people try to give you something, what do you do? (laughs) What's the catch here? You know, there's no free lunch, right? Come on. Really, what, what do you want? You want something. You're not just giving me this for free. We have a hard time accepting that. But that's exactly what God did. But the problem is, it runs counterintuitive to our way of thinking. And it's hard to grab a hold of that. And so the world, as it works through the merit system... You do well in sports, you, you know, you, you play in the, in the game and you, you get lots of applause and all that stuff. If you don't do well, you sit on the bench. Nobody knows who you are. And it goes right through to our, our careers and everything else. Exceptional performance earns promotions and raises. That's just what's ingrained in us. And it's true, right? It's not something that's false, it's true. It's just that God doesn't operate by that same standard. If you work 
and do shoddy work and are sloppy and just don't care about your job, you know what? You'll probably get fired. See, in the spiritual realm, all of the world's religions except biblical Christianity, and I say biblical Christianity because there's a lot of Christianity that's not biblical, unfortunately. Most of the world's religions work on the merit system. It's what you do. I mean, even in the branches of of Christianity that I grew up in, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, they teach a merit-based salvation. In other words, what they believe is that you have to add works to what Christ did on the cross in order to go to heaven. Most people today in Christianity believe that Believers who die go to, not heaven, but they go to a place called purgatory. And what they do in purgatory is kind of in between heaven and hell. And they just kind of hang around there for a while and suffer a while. And eventually, if you have enough people giving the church enough money and lighting enough candles and doing all these things up here for you, eventually your sins will be purged away and you'll earn your way so that you can be promoted to heaven. That's the merit system. That's a, a salvation that really is ingrained in a lot of people today. Ask anyone on the street. How do you think a person gets to heaven? Most people say, well, you know, I think you've got to be a good person. You've got to help people. You've got to do this. And eventually, maybe that'll work out. That's what their answer is. That's how the, the Pharisees believed. The legalistic religion in the time of Jesus and Paul. You know, you've got to do certain things and somehow you earn God's, you merit God's favor. That's why in our church, what we have is we have ordinances. We have two ordinances. We have the Lord's Supper, communion, and we have baptism. Two ordinances. Well, what is an ordinance? An ordinance is something that represents something else. It's just there to remind us of something. When we celebrate the Lord's table together, what does it remind us of? It reminds us of the death of Christ. It reminds us of the suffering of Christ. It reminds us of the glorious resurrection of Christ. That all of our sins have been paid for on the cross. It takes us back to that cross. When you see someone baptized, the other ordinance, what is that? That's basically what Jesus told us to do after you've Follow me, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to become a follower of me, to set you apart, one of the things that that I'm going to request you to do is to believe and be baptized. The Bible speaks of being baptized as a new believer. Well, why would you do that? Well, you follow in the steps of Christ. Christ himself was baptized. He laid down the example for us. And you see throughout the New Testament, when people came to Christ, when they put their faith in Christ, when they were born again, What did they do? They followed the Lord in believer's baptism. We're not talking about baptism of a little baby. little baby doesn't know what's going on. No. In the New Testament, all the believers who were baptized were adult believers, people that could understand that they needed the, the saving work of Christ applied to their wretched heart in order to receive salvation. And once they did that, they said, yes, I'm one of your followers, Jesus, and I'm going to be baptized, I'm going to be lowered down into the water, immersed, and then brought back up as a picture, as a reminder of what you did for me. Christ went up on the cross, he was buried, and he was raised again. 
but we call them ordinances. We don't call them sacraments. See, a sacrament in some churches says that, you know what, when you do these certain things, whether it's marriage or the priesthood or confirmation or communion or whatever, whatever else, I can't remember all the, the different sacraments that we went through, but when you go through a sacrament, what are you doing? You're earning God's favor. A sacrament is the way God dispenses, in, according to their beliefs, not the Bible, the, his grace. He dispenses his grace through these sacraments. So we don't have sacraments here. We don't have an altar up here. We have no need for an altar. The Bible says that when Jesus died, he died once for all. And on the cross himself, his own words, the words of our Lord and Savior, he said, it is what? Finished. We don't need to continue to be sacrificing Jesus every Sunday and holding up the host and falsely claiming that it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus by some hocus-pocus that the priest does. I don't mean to be crass with that, but that's exactly what's going on. And I think we need to understand what the Bible says, not what some world religion teaches us. So God's grace gets distorted on one side of it as far as people not even listening to God's grace and just providing a merit system. But on the other side, those who understand grace, some people use the grace of God as a free pass, (laughs) as a ticket. You ever go to Disneyland when you had the Remember back way, some of you are older, you had the e-tickets, and you had all these coupons, and you had, oh, you know, which ride is this? Oh, this is new. It takes two e-tickets or whatever. And they had all these different numbers. They changed all that now. Now they just charge you an arm and a leg, literally, and, you know, let you do whatever you want in there because they realize it's going to take you hours to get through one ride anyway, so you're not going to abuse the system at all. But when it comes to the grace of God, some people view God's grace as a path. Hey, I'm saved. You know, don't, don't tell me about my sinful lifestyle. I'm under the grace of God, brother. You need to get off this legalistic mumbo-jumbo and just, you know, relax in the armchairs of grace. I'm not into that, you know, rules and all the keeping this and doing that. And, and, and I'm under grace. That's what the New Testament teaches. I think you're living in the Old Testament. And for them, unfortunately, because they have a misunderstanding of God's grace, basically what God's grace equals is sloppy Christian living. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want, knowing that, oh, somehow God's grace just makes it all go away in the end. And when you point out to them certain things in their lives that may not be correct according to the word of God, and by the way, we are called to do that as brothers and sisters in Christ. Nobody is above that. We're to work together, you see something in my life, I expect you to come to me and say, look, this, is, this doesn't look right. Maybe you need to uh, uh, you know, make some adjustments here. Maybe you need to examine this. That's what we need to do, one for another. Because we all have you know, areas of our lives that may we not even be aware that it's offensive in some way. 
None of us are above that. But when you point out some of these things to someone who has a faulty idea of what grace is, they look at you and say, oh, you're just one of those legalists. You know, judge not, you know, and they quote all these verses about judging. Well, our text corrects both of these serious misconceptions of God's grace. That it's a bunch of rules somehow that you've got to earn your way to heaven. And on the other side, that God's grace is a free pass. And so when we look here at verse 11, we see God's present grace. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God, His unmerited favor, has appeared. Well, how has it appeared? It's appeared through who? Through the person of Jesus Christ. That's how it appeared. It's very clear. When Christ came to earth, He took on human form. He was the incarnation. He was God incarnate. God in a bod. He took on a human body. And for the first time ever, God was here on earth walking and talking just like someone else, another human being. And yet, being fully God, fully sinless in every way, full deity of Christ was fused into his human body. And it says, when the grace of God are for or but, the grace of God has appeared. I mean, this is really... The reason we do verses 1 through 11, or 1 through 10. He says, because I just told you all this stuff in verses 1 through 10, just remember, it's the grace of God that makes this happen. Because it's the grace of God that has appeared. Look at what it says. Bringing salvation for all people. Now some people have a problem with this verse. Because they have the faulty understanding that this teaches that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And what happens is they fall into a universalist kind of mentality. And so then you get people on the other side that say, no, 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 you know, Christ died for this people, he didn't die for those people, and we get into this big argument theologically over the atonement of Christ. The one thing that's very clear is when Jesus taught about those who would believe in him, those who would follow him, basically you could summarize what he said. He said, if, if Jesus said, if you believe, then you are what? Then you are saved. If you do not believe, you are what? You are damned to hell. That's what the Bible clearly teaches over and over and over again. It doesn't really mention, Jesus doesn't start to talk about, well, how far does the atonement go? When we're out sharing Christ with someone who's not a, 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 a believer... We don't need to wonder, boy, are they one of the elect or not? That's not what we're called to do at that point in moment. From the standpoint of a sinner, the atonement extends to him by the virtue of faith. 
Very clear you understand this. And it's also closed out to him by the virtue of faith or by unbelief. So if the sinner is willing to believe in Christ, then he will be granted salvation. If he's unwilling, then he will not. You will die in your sins because you do not believe in him. You didn't believe in his sacrifice for you. Over in the Gospel of John, as you read through, um, we're not going to do it right now, but John, we're going to turn to some, you can turn to John chapter 6, but John chapter 3, when he starts sharing the Gospel, when he starts being evangelistic, when he's talking to unbelievers, he doesn't mention anything about the eternal elective purpose of God. He doesn't make any decree from God declaring that, you know, uh, that God may not have died for you. No, he doesn't say that at all. See, it's not the job, our job, to discover whether someone's chosen or whether they're not. That's a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief. In John chapter 6, Jesus very clearly points out, and he says there in John 6, he says, All that the Father gives to me, all that the Father gives to me, will come to me. And he also says, whoever comes to me, I won't cast out. Notice that word, whosoever, or whoever. Particularly here in the the Gospel of John, it's probably one of the most evangelistic Gospels there is of the four. It's written so that people might believe in Jesus Christ, that people might come to faith, that people might come to understand that he's the son of God. There's a cry of faith, for faith, for people to express their faith. And so when we confront a sinner, what we say to them is the same thing that Jesus said, the same thing the apostles said. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That includes repentance. It includes turning from sin. It includes being submissive to the Lordship of Christ. That's looking at it from the sinner's side. And the reason I'm saying this is because sometimes we get so caught up in the doctrine of God's election, which is a very biblical doctrine. That we forget that God cares for the sinners who are lost. We think, hey, I'm part of the elect. The others aren't, I guess. Oh, well, what do I got to do about it? God's got it all worked out in heaven. Oh, well. Nothing for me to do here, I guess. I'll just pack my bag and go home. Wait for him to return and go to glory. We have to look at it from both sides. And there's a tension there. We get caught up in the debate of whether the atonement of Christ is limited or unlimited. And I'll share with you what the Bible teaches. 
But I want you to understand, salvation comes down to a matter of faith. Our God is a saving God. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In John chapter 3, verse 14, it tells us that Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, and it says, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then it says in verse 15, that whosoever, what, believes may in him have eternal life. Whoever believes. It doesn't say that the elect believe. It says whoever. Verse 15, it makes it very, very simple. Verse 16 goes on. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life verse 17 goes on it says for god did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world should be saved through him he who believes in him is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god So there you go again, the same thing. God loved the world, God sends Christ into the world to die for the sins of the world so that the world would be saved through Him by believing in His sacrifice. It's it's abundantly clear that the Scripture calls the sinner to believe. It's a matter of faith. You don't have to discover whether the atonement is for you or for somebody, or you're a part of the elect or not. It doesn't call us to that. It's not even on the radar screen for an unbeliever. In the sixth chapter of John, verse 51, Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone, anyone, eats of this, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for him... For the life of the world is my flesh. See, there's an extent in which God's grace even reaches the world. In chapter 1 of John, verse 29, it says, The next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said this. Look at what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. I mean, John knows what he means by world. When he says God so loves the world, he takes away the sin of the world. I mean, it's a very straightforward statement. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Right now you're probably wondering, where's he, where's he going with this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. It says, speaking of reconciliation, Paul is speaking here, and he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, look at, in Christ, God was reconciling, what? The world to himself. 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Then verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors, we're representatives for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Look at what it says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, it's not, the question is not who's elect and who's not. That's not the question. The question is, do you know that Christ died for your sins? And are you willing to believe by faith in that truth? 1 Timothy Look at this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Follow along, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. Only one, not many, one. They don't have saints and all these other people in there. No, there's only one mediator. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the man Christ. And look at what it says in verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Very unqualified statement here. That's what it says. Look over at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. First John chapter 2, verse 2. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole what? world. Now, if you're just going to focus on those verses, and you're going to read those verses, you're going to have to conclude that Jesus died for the world. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look at what it says in verse 10. Because we want to take the whole of Scripture, right? 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. This is Paul once again writing to Timothy. He says, For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Who is the Savior of what? Of all people, especially, look at what it says, of those who believe. Interesting. You have a little qualifier there all of a sudden. He's the Savior of all men, but especially of those who believe. Very important verse. See, you have to understand that to some degree, all men enjoy some degree of the saving power of God. If they didn't, we wouldn't be here. It's what we call common grace. If this wasn't true, the minute we sin, God would just snuff us out. If this wasn't true, Paul wouldn't tell the un. The, the believing wife, that you know what, your, your husband is, is set apart because of your belief. 
not saying he's saved, but he will reap the benefits of living in a, a household who is under God's blessing because of the woman's belief. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma here. So we ask the question, God has sent Christ to be the Savior. It says that he's the Savior of all men. In most of the verses we just read, but we just saw one here, it said, especially of those who believe. This is, this is so important that we understand this at the very foundation of our faith. Because we need to believe that, you know what? When we tell a sinner that, you know what? The Bible says whosoever believes, puts their faith in Christ, will be saved. You have to believe that to your, at your very core, that that's, that's true. You're not telling them a lie. You can't be telling them that and then saying, well, you know, hopefully you're one of the elect because if you're not, well, too bad. <laughs> See, there's, there's, there's two sides to this and we want in our logic to bring them together and God says, no. <laughs> no, you can't. You don't have my mind. My ways are not your ways. There are some mysteries that are hidden from you and they will con- be continually hidden from you. Dabney, he wrote a book called The Five Points of Calvinism, and he wrote this, Christ's sacrifice has certainly purchased for the whole human race a merciful postponement of the doom incurred by our sins, including all the temporal blessings of earthly life, all the gospel restraints on human depravity, and the sincere offer of heaven to everyone. For but for Christ, man's doom would have followed instantly after his sin, as that of the fallen angels did. See, immediately after the angels sinned, Lucifer and his bunch, a third of the angels, they they turned their hearts against God. What happened to them? Immediately they were judged. Immediately they were cast out of heaven. There was no, okay, let's see if they're going to experience the grace of God. No, there is no grace for them. The angels can't be saved. That's something that's unique to us. What he's saying here in that quote is that Christ, in some form, (laughs) we would call that form a temporal blessing of the gospel, blessed the world. Because if it weren't true, sinners would not be alive and walking around today. It rains on the what? The just and the unjust. The angels don't have that prerogative. There's no salvation for them. They sinned and immediately they were damned. Damned. 
So there's a sense in the saving work of Christ that it literally delivered, even temporarily, a judgment for all. I mean, that's what the Day of Atonement was all about in the Old Testament, right? Yom Kippur. It basically covered the nation. God forgave their sins as a nation and set aside His judgment. It didn't guarantee everybody's salvation. That's a matter of faith. That's a matter of election. But it did cover them that they weren't immediately under the wrath of God, under God's judgment. And I think that's what we're reading when we read in 1 Timothy 4. The death of Jesus Christ was this gracious, merciful act. And its benefits extend to the whole world. And it even gives them blessing upon blessing. Because they're not instantly just burned up. Because of their sinfulness. They receive a temporary blessing. He delivers the unregenerate from instant death. Something he didn't do for the angels. So what this points us back to is that our God is a savior. Our God loves us. Our God is gracious to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at this verse, another interesting verse. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. It says there, though he saved the whole nation, he was not pleased with most of them. But he gave them opportunity what? Repent. Nevertheless, the most of, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most of them he was not pleased. See, God saves all men in a, in a temporal sense, but he saves believers especially, back to that verse we saw. Not just in a temporal sense, but in a spiritual sense, and in an eternal sense. So you say, well, was the death of Christ, the atonement of Christ, limited? Or did he die for the sins of the whole world? Did he pay for the sins of the whole world? It's very important to understand that when we speak of the atonement of Christ, of Him actually paying a a fine that we owed, He paid the fine in full. The only way that you can benefit from His death on the cross is by expressing your faith to follow Him. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, you know what? Therefore you are without excuse. You are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you yourself judge, who judge, practice the same things. And we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And then he says there, he says, Do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Who do you think you are? Then verse 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Don't you understand that the kindness of God leads you to what? Repentance. See, our God is a loving God. Our God is a gracious God. It's the kindness of God by His grace that leads us to repentance. Get out of your mind that God's up there with a big hammer waiting for you to sin just so He can squash you like a bug and kick you through the gates of hell saying, yeah, you got what you deserve, pal. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God of the Bible. God's temporary kindness, His mercy, His patience, His forbearance is constantly leading people to repentance. But instead of repenting, they are stubborn. They're unrepentant. And they, the Bible says they store up wrath for the day of wrath when God will make all things right according to His justice. The point simply is that every man knows <laughs> that they're a sinner, whether they believe it or not. And God one day will judge that. One day, God's mercy, God's grace, will no longer be available. Look over at John 15. John 15, verse 13. says, Their greater love, Jesus said, had no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then look at what he says. You are my friends, if what? If you do what I command you. Well, what does he command? He commands you to believe and you'll be saved. He commands you to repent, to follow him, to obey him. If you do that, you're counted as one of his friends. If you do that, it says he lays down his life for his friends. Well, who are his friends? They're the people who come to him and believe in him. Verse 15, he flips it over. He says, by the way, you didn't choose me. What? I chose you. Wow. Okay. Here we go. Now we got both sides kind of laid right out there. See, it's a matter of faith. But it's also a matter of divine choice. Romans 3.26 says that he is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
The one who obeys the command to repent, believe, follow, submit, is the one who is in faith. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, what? He's faithful, he's just to forgive us our sins. The one who believes, the one who repents, the one who follows, the one who has faith, who confesses that faith, is the one who enters into that reconciliation with God. Whosoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. The word atonement in the Old Testament was never really specific. Like when you speak of the day of atonement, it doesn't actually mean a saving atonement. As we spoke about Yom, Yom Kippur, it kind of just put off God's justice. It was used in more of a moral sense. There was a provision that was made in the Old Testament, right? The priest went to the altar. What did he do? He made sacrifices. Did any of those sacrifices ever save anybody? No. Not at all. It just kind of temporarily relieved them from God instantaneously judging them. Because they were looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. See, God doesn't work on the merit system, beloved. He works on the substitutionary system. He says, you know what? You might deserve this. But I'm going to substitute the righteousness of my own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, and he has perfect, complete righteousness, and I'm going to place that on you, even though you don't deserve it. And I'm going to do that through my grace, by mercy. I'm not going to withhold the judgment that you deserve, and I'm going to apply to you the righteousness of my son, even though you don't even deserve it. That's what it speaks about in the New Testament when it talks about in Romans 5.11 when it talks about reconciliation. See, you have to understand that the atonement of Christ was not some general atonement. It wasn't some general provision that God made for everybody in the entire world. Because if Christ paid for the sins of everyone in the entire world, you would have to be a universalist. Meaning that you wouldn't believe in hell, you would believe that everybody was saved. Or God could not be a just God. Because you would have people, if you believe that, if you believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died for the sins of the whole entire world, all their sins are paid for, then you would have some people who are going to be in hell with their sins having been paid for by Christ and yet enduring for all eternity the wrath of God. That's injustice. We don't serve that kind of a God. You have to believe that the atonement of Christ was not general. It was particular. It was specific. When Jesus died on the cross, he just didn't die for everybody. 
He died for you. He died for me by name. He knows our sins. He knows our iniquities. And yet he still bore them on the cross for us. Quoting from Dabney again from his book, he says, There are as many atonements as there are true believers in heaven and earth, each one individual. The word means to be reconciled. When you're reconciled with God, the only way that could happen is your sins are forgiven. The only way they can be forgiven is your faith is put in a sacrifice that was made on your behalf. Is the atonement of Christ limited? Even those that don't believe in the limited atonement would have to say that it is. Or you would have people in hell who had their sins paid for, who were paying for their sins. Double jeopardy. That doesn't make any sense. That's not justice. That's a mockery of justice. See, the difference being is faith. It's faith. That's why when we go out of this place and we go out into a lost and dying world and we're sharing the gospel with those who've yet to believe, we don't have to talk about election. We don't have to talk about the atonement of Christ as far as whether it's particular. No, what do we have to tell them? You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand that he paid for your sins. And when people get focused on one side or the other, that's when you have all the problems. The people that get focused on God's election and his sovereignty and limited atonement, all those things are good things. I believe wholeheartedly every one of those things. But you get steeped in that, you walk out these doors, you can, you can, you can honestly believe, why should I even do anything? If God is so sovereign and God is in control of everything and he knows everything's going to happen, what does that, and all that is true, but it leads us to a fatalistic outlook on our faith. Why pray? Why pray for my lost brother-in-law or brother or whoever it might be or sister? I mean, God's got it all worked out. Why do I have to do anything? See, that's dangerous. That's not what God calls us to do. And yet on the other side, if we think that somehow Christ's atonement paid for everybody's sin and the only way that they can tap into that is by exercising their free will, and the people that are in heaven are there not because God chose them, but because they chose God, that runs contrary to Scripture. And there's people that go far the extreme of that way. So when you go out and you evangelize, it's up to you as the evangelist to talk people into heaven. And the better you are, the more people you can talk into heaven. And you close your little deal with a little prayer and, hey, sinner's prayer, you know, just pray this prayer after me and, and God, will, God will save you. If you ever listen to Joel Olstein's program at the end of his program, he says, you know what, I believe by faith. If you say this, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I repent of my sins and I want to trust in you. Well, you've been born again. Praise the Lord. That's what he says. Is it that easy? Definitely. <laughs> if God is in that work. But if God's not working, 
If you're just doing it to get this guy off your back, you know, go away. Okay, I'll pray your silly prayer. And there's no heart change. There's no, there's no input from God in the divine work of salvation. That's the only way anybody is ever saved. It's not by expressing your will. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We couldn't save ourselves if we wanted to. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. God has that gift available for you today. Even in Titus 2, 14, he gave himself for the world. He might redeem us, purify for himself his own possession. One last place I want you to turn and we'll close is John chapter 10. John chapter 10. While you're turning there, Isaiah 53, 8 says, He died for the transgression of my people. That's God, my people. John 10, verse 11. John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. The good shepherd lays down his life for the world. What's it say? For the sheep. Verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the what? For the sheep. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are what? Not part of the sheep. You're not part of the flock. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice and I what? Know them and they what? Follow me. I give them eternal life, it says. They will never perish. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In John 17, 9, Jesus says, this concerning this whole, what we're talking about. He says, speaking in his high priestly prayer here, in verse 9 he says, I am praying for them, who, his disciples, his people there. I am not praying, look at what he says, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me, for they are yours. So he points out very clearly that, you know what, I'm not up there interceding for the world. I'm interceding for the ones that you've chosen to give me. Look all the way down to verse 19. 
He says, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask, verse 20, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's, it's so important that we don't just lump our belief systems in certain camps and say, well, that's the way it's got to be and, and that makes logical sense to me. You know what? In the end, there's a mystery in all this. Why would God choose some and not the rest? I don't know. I can't tell you that. And what's an even deeper mystery to me, to be honest with you, is why, why would God choose me? <laughs> why would God choose anybody? I mean, we all deserved his wrath, his judgment. Why would God in his mercy and grace reach down and, and, and grab a lump and say, hey, you're, you're, you're my people now. I'm going to make provision for you to live with me in all eternity, even though you don't believe it. Somehow in the mind of God, beloved, the election of God and the atonement of Christ, it totally jives with our human choice, our human volition. From, from, from what the Bible says, the best I can understand it, is that men go to hell because they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they go to heaven because they do. I mean, how does God harmonize that with all his purpose and his divine choice and all that? I don't know. All that I know that our message to every sinner needs to be, you know what, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We'll continue this next week. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, and I, I know that uh, there's a tension in the teaching because sometimes we can't comprehend both sides of the coin. We can't comprehend that your message to the world is that you love them and you sent your son to die for their sins. From our perspective, we see that as true. But from your perspective, you know that you've chosen before the foundation of the world those who would be saved. And Christ died for those individuals. The death of Christ wasn't just a a general act of sacrifice like the Old Testament. No, it was particular. When he hung on Calvary, he thought of you, he thought of me, he thought of us by name, knowing that all the wrath and everything that he was going to experience, not just physically, but even spiritually from God the Father, as God judged the sin that was placed upon him, the perfect Lamb of God, even though he committed no sin at all, he bore the sins of every man, every woman, every child who would ever put their faith, their trust in that sacrifice. Lord, we thank you that we live in the day and age of grace, that your grace hasn't ended yet, that it truly is an amazing grace. And Father, that you desire all men to be saved. 
We pray that that would be our message to a lost and dying world. And Lord, as Christians, that we would continue to live lives, that we do everything we can to live lives that honor your name, that depict your saving work in our lives. Father, that we wouldn't become like the world and stained and sinful and unrighteous. But Lord, that we would live lives that are empowered by your spirit, empowered by your word. Lives that give you honor and glory. That we would be monuments of your grace and saving power. If there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart, that you would show them, as only you can, their need of a Savior. Father, we're all lost and doomed to hell except for that saving work of Christ. We pray that you would just call that one more into your kingdom as we await your return. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.